pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. You call yourself the God of all grace, and you have been gracious in your dealings with us. We thank you for the saving grace we just sang about. Lord, we were lost, and you sent Jesus to seek and save the lost. Lord, as we said in Sunday school, you call us to repent, and you grant repentance. You grant faith. You grant everything that we might be restored to you when we could never have done that ourselves or even helped. I pray for anyone who's never experienced your great salvation, that even today your quickening grace, your life from the dead grace would be poured out. They would come to know Jesus. And Lord, you don't just get it started. Lord, you preserve us in your grace. You keep us in Jesus. We're kept by his power. And we just are thankful that you sustain us day after day. Thank you for the grace that is sufficient for every need we could possibly face. Whatever crisis, whatever bad news, whatever comes our way, Lord, your grace is enough, more than enough for us. So thank you that you give us such grace. Thank you that you give us grace to will and do your good pleasure. Lord, we need that even now as we open your word and look at it together. We need your grace to understand it. We need your grace to follow what it calls us to do. So again, we just look to you to pour out the spirit on us. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We're not Smart enough or strong enough, we acknowledge our dependence on your grace to work among us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In some ways, we're pretty aware of the time. We frequently look at the clock or our watches or phones to see what time it is. But in other ways, we might need some help to see time from a bigger perspective. Our text for today gives us some important reminders about the past, present, and future, and some appropriate responses in light of those realities. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, as we pick up our study again in this New Testament letter. 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be starting with the first Three verses. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So you can see the reference to the past in verse 3, 
for the time already past is sufficient. Sufficient for what? And the answer is for carrying out the desires that the Gentiles want to do. So remember, the Apostle Peter is writing to first-generation believers who have come out of a Gentile background, which means they're from non-Jewish ethnic groups, and they did not know the true and living God. Before they were brought into a relationship with the true God, they took part in a life devoted to things like sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And Peter's point then is, you've already wasted more than enough time in that kind of lifestyle. Therefore, make a clean break from the past and be done with that kind of life so that you no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lusts of men. It's similar to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, if you want to turn to that passage, also writing to people who had come out of a Gentile background. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. So you used to walk this way, but no longer walk that way in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. You used to be that, but you're not. So don't walk that way anymore. Don't live that way anymore. You can also see a reference to the present in verse 2. The second half of verse 2 says, No longer the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the rest of men, but for the will of God. So the rest of time in the flesh is the rest of your time in this world, either until the Lord calls us home, or as we're going to get to verse 7, or until he returns. But either way, we're still here for now, and we're supposed to live a certain way while we're here in the present. So let's trace how Peter gets to the conclusion about living for the will of God. Verse 1 starts with the word, therefore, which always should get our attention because it's going to connect us to the previous passage. And he's going to apply the discussion that he began back in chapter 3. So go back to chapter 3, verse 13. He starts with a rhetorical question, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And usually the answer is no one will harm you or even bother you for doing good. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. So sake of doing the right thing, you're going to suffer negative consequences. It's possible that something negative will happen for doing the right thing. So verse 17 goes on then to say, It is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So just Friday afternoon, less than 48 hours ago, I was talking to a brother, um, and he mentioned that he was put in this situation at work that was ethically questionable. And he told his boss, I'm not going to do that. 
Now, if his boss is, well, if his boss is a non-Christian, could that go south? <laughs> You're not a team player. This is how the game works. You need to do what we tell you to do. Don't worry about your scruples. Don't be so religious. Just do it. So it's possible that you'll suffer negative consequences for doing the right thing. Like, no, I have a conscience. I have some standards. I'm not going to fudge something here. So Peter moves on from that. The next verses, 18 and following, are about the example of Jesus who chose to suffer in order to obey the will of God. And then Peter applies that to us and says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. So arm yourselves is a phrase that it has military language in it, expressing the idea of preparing for battle. Put your armor on, grab your weapons, get ready to engage in a conflict. We're called to have the same mindset as Christ, to have the same kind of resolve he had to be prepared to suffer, to be faithful to the will of God. So what about that last phrase in verse 1? Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let me read something from Wayne Grudem. Whoever has suffered for doing right and has still gone on obeying God in spite of the suffering it involved has made a clear break with sin. The phrase has ceased from sin cannot mean no longer sins at all. For certainly that is not true of everyone who has been willing to suffer for doing right. And several passages in the scripture rule out the idea that anyone can be absolutely free from sin in this life. It rather means that has made a clear break with sin, has most definitely acted in a way which shows that obeying God and not avoiding hardship is the most important motivation for his or her action. So you get that idea? And this is just another statement of a theme that we've seen several times in this letter already. Namely, you're no longer who you used to be. Therefore, don't live the way you used to live. So let's just look at some of those to refresh our memories. Go back to 1 Peter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. We were spiritually dead. We've been made spiritually alive. We've experienced this miracle. We couldn't raise ourselves from the dead. We couldn't give ourselves life. But God did that for us by his grace. John Blanchard says, Becoming a Christian is not making a new start in life. It is receiving a new life to start with. Or another person said, it's not turning over a new leaf, it's starting a new life. But either way, you get the point. Born again, you're starting over. You're a new person. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Or back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but now, like the Holy One who 
called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. So here's this before and after picture. You used to be like this. Don't stay there. Live this way now. Live in holiness. 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises or the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you used to be in darkness. You're not there anymore. You've been called out. You're now in light. Again, Paul says something similar to the Ephesian believers in chapter 5, Ephesians 5, verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Well, as you should know by now, England has a new king. So let's say King Charles III decides he wants to collect taxes from Americans. I'm glad you laughed. Now, if you got a letter from him 247 years ago, guess what? You'd have to pay taxes. Because we, at that time, were a British colony. And we had to obey the king. But we made a clear, decisive break with England. Remember your history? 1776, Revolutionary War, we won. We're free. We don't have to listen to them anymore. We're not under their authority anymore. We're a new country. So let's say King Charles III sends that letter. Youth could still write a check and send it. But why would you? It's hard enough paying the ones in America. (laughs) You don't have to send taxes to England anymore because that was in the past, but the past is over, and we're now living in a new time where we don't have to do that. And that's a similar way of what Peter's getting at. We no longer need to live the way we used to live because we're not who we used to be. We're new creation. We've been called out of darkness. We're starting fresh. Now we're called to live for the will of God, which includes obeying his commands, submitting to his purposes, and following his priorities. And Peter goes on to tell us what kind of reaction we should expect from others when we devote ourselves to living for the will of God instead of the way we used to live. So verse 4, back in 1 Peter 4, says, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. So, for example, maybe you used to drink with family members or friends. But now you're convicted by God not to participate in that anymore. How will your former drinking companions respond to that? Or sometime back I got an email from a sister in our church family. How she didn't want to be part of some of the conversations that were happening at work. 
She used to be part of those. She didn't feel comfortable in those anymore. So how will her co-workers respond to that? And Peter tells us, first of all, they'll be surprised at our non-participation. Not sure what to make of the fact that we used to be okay with those things, and now we're not. So they wonder, what's gotten into you? You didn't have a problem with this before. What's up? But not only will they be surprised, they will be offended and will malign you. Look up malign in the dictionary. It means to injure by speaking evil of. To utter injuriously misleading or false statements. Synonyms include defame, slander, or vilify. So they might say, oh, so you're too good for us now. You think you're better than everybody else. We don't need you judging us. You're just one of those intolerant religious people. And Peter's telling us, arm yourselves for that kind of verbal pushback. Be prepared to be misunderstood and rejected by other people. People might say some nasty things either to you and or about you. But don't compromise in order to avoid the world's frowns. Be ready to experience the world's disapproval for choosing to live for the will of God. Well, there's a cost to living for the will of God. The world will not understand or appreciate it, and they're going to push back. And so you have a choice. Do I care about what the world thinks, unbelievers think, I want to stay in their good graces, so I'm willing to compromise or no, my ultimate commitment is to God and living for his will, and I'm willing to take whatever flack I get for that. But instead of just telling us, well, don't let it bother you, just shake it off, Peter adds a sobering phrase. Verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He could have just stopped at verse 4, but he adds this phrase. Now, many people would like to believe I don't have to answer to anyone, no one has the right to judge me. And here's Peter reminding us. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a day of reckoning. And they will give an account to him who is ready to judge. What we used to say, quicken the dead, when I said the creed. (laughs) Living, those living now and those who have already died will be judged. Now, who is that talking about? Well, Peter uses a similar phrase in Acts chapter 10. So let's go back to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse 42. Peter is speaking. And he says, 
And he, God, who raised Jesus from the dead, has ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So same phrase, right? Same author, Peter, in both places. or Luke writes, but Peter's speaking. The one who's going to judge the quick and dead is Jesus, which fits two other texts. Go to John 5, 23 and 24, or 22 and 23. John 5, 22. Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Why? So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then last, Acts 17, the Apostle Paul will say this to the Greeks at Athens. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Acts 17, verse 30 says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So Jesus is the one that every person will stand before on the day of judgment. The day of final judgment's already been set. He's already fixed a day. He's already appointed the presiding judge. There's absolutely nothing uncertain about whether this day of reckoning will happen. It will. And so the question then is, are you ready for that day? If God is showing you you're not, confess, I'm guilty. I am not able to stand before a righteous judge and be acquitted. Psalm 130 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is, absolutely no one could stand. So I turn, turn from a lifestyle of disobeying and dishonoring him, turn from trusting anything you could do to get that verdict changed. A lot of people operate under the false assumption if your good deeds offset your bad deeds, if you have more of good deeds than bad things, God will say, okay, you weren't perfect, but close enough. And that's not what the Bible says. Isaiah 64, 6 says, our righteousness, our good stuff, is as filthy rags before God. So that's not going to make it. Filthy rags are not acceptable to a holy God. So trust Christ alone to be forgiven and accepted by God on the last day. Believe that his death on the cross is the only way the guilt of your sins could ever be blotted out from your record. Believe his resurrection from the dead shows he has the power and authority to forgive sins and give eternal life to those who believe in him. Believe Jesus when he says in John 5, 24, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So while we're headed for judgment and a guilty verdict and condemnation and sentence to hell forever, but believing in Jesus and the one who sent him, we won't come into that judgment. There's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We're passed out of death into life because of him. Back to 1 Peter, verse 6 is connected to the reality of final judgment. For, so this is connected to five, for the gospel has, for the good news, God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin of sin, the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So apparently some were asking, what's the advantage of being a Christian? Those who follow Jesus die, and those who don't follow Jesus die. So what's the difference? Peter says, oh, there's a big difference. Yes, it's true that believers die. They are judged in the flesh as men. And that's the sentence we're all under. Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's why there's such a thing as physical death. We're all sinners. The wages of sin is death, both physically and spiritually. And so all of us are still under that sentence, including believers, until the Lord comes back. Believers still die and experience that level of judgment in the flesh as men. But, Peter says, physical death does not have the last Word, those who embraced the gospel before they died now live in the spirit. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Oh, excuse me, wrong. He did say that too, which is absolutely true. He also said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if He dies. Or John 14, 9, because I live, you shall live also. So Peter's reminding us, in case you needed the reminder, our hope is not just in this life, this brief little blip of a life. 70, 80 years, maybe 90, that's it? No. No. Competing messages here. Our hope, our confident expectation is that we will be with the Lord forever in heaven where we will experience fullness of joy in his presence. That's our hope. Not for anything this world might offer. 
It's eternal. It's after this little life is over, forever and ever and ever in the presence of the Lord. And so Peter wanted to remind us of that. So Peter reminds us about the past. We've already wasted enough time living in sin and darkness. He reminds us about the present. We're now called to live the rest of our time on this earth for the will of God. And then he's going to end this section with a reminder of the future. Verse 7, we'll just read the first phrase. The end of all things is near. So there are several statements in the New Testament about that reality. Go to Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 11. Do this knowing the time. That it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Or Hebrews 10.25. Hebrews 10.25. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And the author of Hebrews could have stopped there, but he adds, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So believing that the day is near is intended to increase our level of encouraging one another. We should be doing it anyway, day after day, it says in Hebrews 3, and he says, up it some more because the day is near. We need more encouragement the closer we get to the Lord's return. James 5, next book over, James 5, 7 and 8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is near. And then one more, not that there aren't some more, but Revelation 1, verse 3. Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed, truly happy, in the fullest sense of the word, is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, this book of Revelation I'm about to write, and heed the things which are written in it. Why? For the time is near. So there's at least five statements in the New Testament saying, don't just think this is way, 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 way far away. You don't have to think about this. It's near. So how should we respond to that reality? And I think it's a little bit surprising, actually, where he goes with it. Therefore, in light of that true be of sound judgment and sober mind for the purpose of prayer. Is that where you thought he'd go? The end is near, so pray. And there's other texts that say the end is near, so be ready or 
hasten or lots of other action steps. Peter says, pray. And he says, pray a certain way. Namely, with sound judgment, which is being clear-minded and level-headed and thinking carefully, sober spirit or spirit, sober mind. Dictionary says sober stresses seriousness of purpose and the absence of frivolity. In other words, things of little or no importance. And so, as we hear distressing things in the news, plenty of that, or we read some interesting texts about the end of the world, we don't need to panic. We need to pray. We don't need to panic. We need to pray. We need to think calmly and take things seriously for the purpose of prayer. Remembering that the end of all things is near and being reminded that it's getting closer is intended to help us pray. So I tried to think, what would that even look like? And this is what I came up with. If you come up with something else or better, please tell me, because this is my best attempt. So as we groan about the brokenness of this fallen world, one reaction is lamenting how bad things are and how things are getting worse. That's easy to do. But what I'm seeing in verse 7 and the connection between the end of all things and praying would be something like praying your kingdom come. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago? For those of you who weren't at retreat and were here, your kingdom come. What does that mean? Lord, bring your kingdom in all of its fullness. Overcome the kingdom of darkness and bring all the world under your rightful authority as king. Until the day when Revelation 11 is fulfilled, when this voice in heaven says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That's where history is going. And it's certain. And Jesus says, pray your kingdom come. So the kingdom will come. And in a way I don't understand fully, we're to pray that it does come. And praying that way, in light of the Lord's ultimate victory, will give us perspective and stability no matter how alarming things get until then. So let's pray. Oh Lord, we do pray your kingdom come. This world is broken. It is not what it's supposed to be. There's a lot of sin and evil and darkness. Still under the curse still sickness and sorrow and death in it. And so we pray, your kingdom come. Lord, thank you that you have made us part of your kingdom. You transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. We're now yours. We can look forward to that day without dread. And Lord, in the meantime, I pray that you would 
Help us not only to pray, but to live the rest of our time on this earth until you come back or come for us to take us home. Either way, Lord, that we would live for you, fully devoted to your purposes and your will, not the way we used to live before we came to know you. And again, I pray for anyone who hasn't come to know you that even today they might experience the miracle of a new birth, be born again to a living hope and a new life, an everlasting life because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, I Surrender All.